This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. You can turn to Matthew chapter 2 and blessed feast of the Epiphany to you all. Some years ago, there was a migrant worker uh, in southern Colorado, a man named Pablo, who worked in the onion fields. And the owner of the fields had told him, okay, we're not harvesting onions right now. I need you to go out and dig a new ditch uh, for some irrigation. So he starts digging this ditch, and as he's digging, he discovers a box, and in this box is a significant amount of gold coins. He looks at the gold coins, and they look like they're Spanish conquistador era coins. Now, Pablo was a smart guy, so he knew that not only the amount of gold that was before him was worth probably millions, but the fact that this was historic gold, this would be a value to a museum, or somebody would want even more for this gold than its value just purely in gold. Now, Pablo also was a smart guy, and he knew if I just take this box and try to sell it to a museum or give it to somebody, they're going to trace it back. They're going to start asking questions. Being an undocumented immigrant, he knew that he would be in a place of, of disadvantage if the owner of the field said, hey, that, that box actually belongs to me. It came out of my field if he disputed it. So Pablo put the box back in the ground, and he went to the owner of the field, and he said, that onion field out there, that small field, how, how much for it? And the, he was so confused. The, the owner of the field, he said, Pablo, I don't mean to dissuade you, but I mean to dissuade you. That field is small. You can't earn a living off of that field. And even so, it's worth more than you could ever afford. And Pablo just said, name the price. Tell me, how much for the field? And he said, okay, $100,000, and it's yours. Pablo goes back, and he, he calls his wife, who's still in Mexico. He says, all the money I've been wiring you, wire it back. Also, sell the house. Tell Ma and Pa to sell their house. Go find somewhere else to live for a little while. Figure out some way to get me $100,000, and quick. And she did. Others pulled together the money. They sent it to him. He bought the field. And when he finally brought the, the treasure of Spanish gold to the museum that wanted it, they, they valued it $100 million. With that money, Pablo kept half. The rest of it he dispersed evenly among all of those who helped pitch in, even gave the farmer a, a fair shake. The farmer had a good sense of humor about it. Now, some of you already know the story that I told you is not quite true in the sense that there's no Pablo, there's no Spanish gold, although we really wish there were. I mean, wouldn't that be an amazing story? But it is a true story in that Jesus told that story. I updated it in a modern setting, added a few details, but that's essentially the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. And it is a true story in the sense that every day all around the world, people are discovering this treasure and they're selling everything to have something that's worth even more than $100 million of Spanish gold. As I was praying for this uh, sermon, the Lord led me to preach from that parable a somewhat unconventional choice for the Feast of, of the Epiphany, where the gospel reading is always the story of the Magi. But as we'll see here in a little bit, the overlap and the similarities are, are more than, than we might think at first. So think about the Magi. They're like that worker out in the field. Look at verses 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east, probably from Persia, 
they came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, we've come to worship him. So they've been on a journey of who knows how many hundreds of miles. They come to Jerusalem, the capital city, assuming the king is here. They're saying, where is the king? We followed his star. We know that God, in fact, has been born on earth. The story is so wonderful, isn't it? And we don't even know the beginning of it. We don't know these magi, these wise men, in their divinations, in their astrology, in their magic arts, in these things that, isn't this amazing? These things that are forbidden to the Hebrew people are the very means by which God reveals to them, I'm waiting for you. Come and find me. So somehow, through their astrology and their divination, it had been shown to them and they could see that God was waiting for them at the end of this journey. They saw, they understood, and they responded. And like the, the worker in the field, maybe they didn't sell everything to go, but this journey would have cost them an incredible amount of time, money to travel all that way. The gifts themselves, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, would have been very costly. Maybe they did come close to almost selling everything they had to make this journey. We don't know for sure. There was also the cost of their danger. Once Herod found out that they had tricked him and he was infuriated and sought to destroy them as well. Now compare with Herod and all Jerusalem with him. Read verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. What was their response? Joy. When they find the baby at the end of the story, their response is joy. What did the worker in the field do when he found the treasure? He was filled with joy. What does Herod and all Jerusalem do? They're troubled. They don't like it. So Herod assembled the chief priests, the leaders. He said, okay, where in the prophets, where in our rich inheritance of prophets and Hebrew scriptures, tell me where is the Messiah to be born? They know. They say, Bethlehem. He sends the wise men, go and look for the child and then come back and tell me where he is. So Herod and all Jerusalem with him who are sitting on the inheritance of prophets and promises that are now being fulfilled in their midst, they do not go. They don't go. Guess how far it is to Bethlehem from Jerusalem? It is six miles. It's six miles. The Magi went 600 miles or more. Herod and all Jerusalem with him did not go even six miles. He said it's not worth it. God was born right under their noses. Everything that they as a people were hoping for, the fulfillment of all their hope, right under their noses. And they missed it, and they said, it's not worth our time. And Herod, rather than seeing a treasure, he saw a threat. And rather than finding God, he ended up seeking to oppose God, which he failed to do. But that was his purpose. And this morning, there's a way, soberly, in which we have to admit we're a little bit more like Herod and all Jerusalem in the sense that we sit on the inheritance of church tradition. We, we know our Bibles. We're, we're the ones here in church right now. Bethlehem is only six miles away from you and me. And that should sober us to think that you could be in church your whole life and miss 
the treasure that was there all along, right under your nose. So Herod and all Jerusalem, they were looking out at the same field that the Magi were looking at, but they didn't, they didn't find the treasure. They didn't see it. So in our parable, which is printed there in your bulletin on the sermon page, although you can almost have it memorized, it's so short. Jesus is saying, the kingdom of heaven, meaning becoming one of my followers, meaning having relationship with me, being with God and having God with you and a part of your life, putting yourself under God, the kingdom of heaven, he said, is like this, a man who was out working in a field, and in the field he discovered a treasure that was buried, and in his joy he covered the treasure back up and went away and sold everything he had to buy the field, because in buying the field he knew he would have the treasure, legally and rightfully so. And it was worth it for him to sell everything. He did it with joy. Now, typically, we look at passages like the Magi on this costly journey or the man working in the field selling everything. And and our first instinct and our focus will tend to be to tell one another, and preachers are most guilty of this, seek, 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 search, sell everything, sacrifice more, seek harder for God, we'll say. But here's the epiphany for us this morning. The first step and the the beginning of it all is not actually for me to tell you, seek more, but to see more, see more clearly. For if you see the treasure for what it is, you won't need me to tell you to seek for it. You won't need anyone to tell you it's worth selling everything to follow and to have Jesus in your life. So the beginning of it all is to see. Even before we seek, we must see, which is why we pray in the season of Epiphany for revelation, that beautiful prayer from the Apostle Paul when he says, I pray for you that the eyes of your heart would be opened, the eyes of faith, the eyes that see things in the spiritual realm, so that you may see and know the hope to which you're called, the riches of your inheritance, the power at work for those who believe. The season of Epiphany is one of revelation. We celebrate that in Jesus, God is now fully revealed for those who have eyes to see. The journey of the Magi begins with them seeing a treasure. Again, through their divination, through their astrology, somehow, by God's revelation, but through those means, they were able to see a treasure that was worth the incredible cost of the journey. The man in the field, he saw the treasure Pablo took one look at that Spanish gold, and he knew this is worth more than I could possibly have hoped for. Now, one of the clearest teachings throughout the Bible, you find it in many places, but it is summed up in this. God is found. Indeed, He is always found by those who seek Him. God is always found by those who seek Him. Seek, said Jesus, and you shall find That applies most especially in our search for God Himself. But here's the sober truth. Not everyone will seek Him because not everyone will see in Him and in His kingdom and in submitting to Him in that life, not everyone will see a treasure worth having. They just won't see it. And so they won't seek. 
So God is found, always found by those who seek Him, but not everybody seeks because not everybody sees the treasure to begin with. So where are you this morning? Are you like the Magi? Are you like the worker in the field? Is your life a willing, yes, God, I'm ready for what you have for me, whatever the cost, whatever the obedience you're calling me to, whatever the sacrifice, if so, beautiful, and may you be encouraged to seek him all the more and all the more expectantly in your day-to-day life. But I also know, because I'm not naive, that in church today, there are some of you here, you'd rather be somewhere else. You're more like Herod in in all Jerusalem, if we're honest. And let me just say, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, so just be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. He knows already. And I think beginning with honesty is the best place to start. And I promise you, I'm not here to badger you this morning. I know that won't do any good. I have children. I've tried that, okay? (laughs) So I'm not here to badger you this morning and say, shame on you for not wanting to be here. Instead, I'd rather just begin by saying, I know you're here. You're here because a spouse is pulling you along. Or children, students in middle school and high school, I know you're here because your parents have brought you, as well they should. And when you grow up someday, you'll bring your own kids, as well you should. But I also want to recognize you're not necessarily here by your own choice. So I want to speak to you today especially. Others of you, you're here, you might rather be somewhere else, or from time to time, you actually do think about just giving up on the whole Jesus thing and your Christianity. But you're here because of a guilty conscience. It's no person forcing you to be here, but you just have this guilty conscience that you can't not be in church, at least not yet. So you're here. Okay, so you're here. Let's talk. Again, I don't want to badger you. I'm not going to say, seek more. Shame on you for not seeking more. Why don't you go and sell everything? Instead, I would love to give to you a simple and gentle invitation to ask yourself this question. Am I sure that I'm seeing everything clearly? Is it possible I might be missing something? Is there a treasure right under my nose? And am I willing to do whatever it takes to find out? Before we keep going, I want to make a note that could be a whole sermon in itself, but we'll just note it more briefly for right now. Going back to our parable. There's two sides of the equation, all right? In this parable, there is indeed a selling of everything. The man goes, he sells everything. And so for a brief amount of time, he's homeless. He's basically clothless. There's another side of the equation. I'm sorry if that conjured up images for you that was unintentional. (laughs) Clothless is not even a word either. He probably still had the shirt on his back, okay? Can we assume that? Yes, let's assume that. So there is that side of the equation of selling everything, But there's another side of the equation, which is the treasure that, in the end, he has. The net gain for Pablo. Like, when you think about, in the end, the net gain 
makes it hard to call what he did even a sacrifice. Because all along he knows, net gain, I'm, I'm winning in the end, so to sell everything temporarily is not even a sacrifice. And that was Jesus' point in his teaching. That's what he wanted you to know. Every loss in this life, every sacrifice for him, every obedience when you'd rather do something else, anytime you forgive when you were thinking, I'd rather not, etc., etc. All his commands, which he says, are not burdensome. But even so, in this life, every sacrifice is worth it in the end. The net gain makes it hard to even call it a sacrifice if we have eyes to see it that way. Jesus must be so frustrated that we, we don't hear his clear teachings. I would say he's rolling over in his grave, except he's not in his grave. And to say he's rolling over at his Father's right hand in glory just sounds weird, okay? <laughs> but certainly, he's frustrated that the clear and simple things he says, we don't hear. We seem not to notice, or we even get embarrassed or confused by how often Jesus speaks of reward, treasure, glory, and honor for those who follow him and give their lives to him. We're scandalized by that. And Jesus, he's just like pulling out his hair. No, don't you understand? That's the whole point. I want good things for you. I want a treasure for you. We're so afraid of selfishness and conceit because we're good Christians and we know those are bad things. But because of that, I think sometimes it keeps us from seeing these really clear and plain teachings of Jesus that he has no problem motivating us by what is best for us. He has no problem motivating us by what's in our best interest. He maybe looks at things a little differently than we do. He values things a little differently. His perspective is a lot longer than ours, and that definitely is where we feel the rub. But in the end, he wants you to know that following him is worth every sacrifice. It's worth every effort, well beyond what we could imagine, the treasure waiting for us. So when he says, I want you to die, it's because he's saying, because I want you to really live. When he says, I want you to lower yourself, it's because he says, I want to exalt you and lift you up. When he says, become the least, he says, because that's how you become great. He wants you to become great. When he says, give up, it's because he wants you to gain so much more and have a treasure that you could not find anywhere else but in him. Amen? And that's true even now in this life. To have Jesus... To have God, you have everything that you need. How much more is that true in the life of the world to come? We can't even begin to speak of it. It's unimaginable. So, don't be scandalized anymore. Jesus wants treasure and reward, glory and honor for you. Don't be surprised by that. Be willing to accept that. Now, back to the main point. God is found by anyone and everyone who seeks for Him. But again, the sober reality is not everyone seeks because not everyone sees the treasure worth seeking. If we really saw the joy of having God in our lives and the treasure that it is, again, you wouldn't need me or anybody else to tell you how to live your life or what to do. It would be the natural outflow. It wouldn't be obligation. It wouldn't be guilt. It would just be a grateful response to all that God has done for you. I heard a story from a missionary some years ago, and this one is a true story. Um, he's a missionary in Cairo, and one day the Lord told him to go to a marketplace. It was a very dangerous marketplace for Christians to go to, but the Lord told him, and he obeyed. While he was there, a woman he'd never met before, a Muslim woman, 
from across the marketplace start shouting and pointing at him at the top of our lungs saying, that's the man, there's the man, that's the man. And she runs up to him and starts speaking loudly saying, I had a dream and Jesus came to me and he filled me with love like I've never experienced. No man has ever loved me like he loved me. And he also told me that I would find you in this marketplace and he showed me what you look like and now you're supposed to tell me how to follow Jesus. She's saying this in a marketplace. You could be killed for saying such things. She's now embarking on a journey to follow Jesus that's going to cause her to lose all her family, all her connections. But she is so ready because what did she say? No man has ever loved me like that man. A couple years ago here at church, uh, we had a little spill, a, a leak, and there was water around the floor. And the man who came to clean it up I forget his name. He was a big guy, stocky guy, Hispanic fella. And he came up to my office afterwards, and he just started telling me his story. Same thing. He'd been an alcoholic. He was not good to his wife. He would go to church, but he hated it. He hated the pastor. And he would hear voices in his head telling him to kill the pastor or kill others in his life. And this at the same time both deeply disturbed him, but he also felt the compulsion to do this. Then one day in this small little church, his wife, the pastor, and a few others started praying for him, slash wrestling with him. It was half wrestling match, half prayer. And after I don't know how long of really intense prayer, he was delivered from many demons and his life utterly changed by Jesus. And now he's in my office a little time after that saying, I live my life for Jesus now. I want to tell everybody. And it doesn't matter if it's the pastor up in his office or somebody on the street. He can't not do it. It's the natural outflow of what Jesus did for him. He saw the treasure in the field and he recognized the value on it. Now what I love about both the Magi and what I love about the worker out in the field is exactly what I'm telling you, that no one needed to tell them, oh, saddle up and go on this really arduous journey. No one needed to tell the man, oh, you know what? You need to go sell everything to buy that treasure. They didn't need anyone to tell them to seek or to sell. Now, there are places in the Bible, plenty of them, where we are commanded, exhorted, invited, reminded to seek. Seek the Lord while he wills to be found. Draw on him now in the time when he's, when he's near. Don't wait till it's too late, Isaiah 55. Or the prophet says to the king Asa, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you forsake him, then he will forsake you. But if you seek him, you will find him. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. James says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you on and on. So there are places in the Bible where we are called on to seek, to put in a little effort, to get up out of our seat, to make that sacrifice. And that must mean that the Holy Spirit sees that it's right and good and necessary, probably because of our human weakness, probably because of our blindness, that we need those reminders and we need to be prodded every once in a while to get up, seek, sell. But again, what I love about the Magi, what I love about the worker in the field, no one had to tell them to do that. It was the plain, obvious, and natural response to what they saw. Now, there's a, there's a parallel parable 
say that ten times fast, there's a parallel parable right after the treasure hidden in the field. It's almost exactly the same. It's the one about the merchant who finds the pearl. And he finds the pearl, and similarly, with great joy, he goes, he sells everything in order to buy the pearl. Almost exactly the same formula as the treasure hidden in the field, but with this difference that I find very interesting. With the treasure hidden in the field, who saw the treasure? Nobody except for the man who discovered it. He was the only one who saw it. But in the parable of the pearl, we know that others were looking at that pearl because he bought it, which means he bought it from somebody, from a merchant selling pearls. There were others in the marketplace. Surely others had laid their eyes on that same pearl. Why is that significant? Why is that remarkable? Because they were seeing the same thing, but they were grossly undervaluing it. And along came someone who saw that, who knew more about pearls, I suppose, and said, whoa, that's not worth what you're selling it for. I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to go and sell everything to get the money. I'm going to buy that because I know it's actually worth 10 times or 100 times as much as what you're selling it for. And now that it's mine, again, net gain, immense. So I love that parable of the pearl because it does show us like Herod and all Jerusalem. And yes, sometimes like us too, we're looking right at the treasure, but we're grossly undervaluing it. We're grossly undervaluing it. And so perhaps because of that, because of our human weakness, there are calls from the Scripture, from one another. We remind one another, seek, sell everything, give that up, follow that obedience, follow that nudge. It will be worth it in the end. We, we do need to remind each other. But the simplicity of the Magi in the parables, what I love this morning, no one needed to tell them. They saw. They saw the value. And I do believe that if we could see the treasure truly, and of course we're talking about the Lord Jesus himself, if we could see the treasure, if we could see him in his glory, because we, we have not even caught a glimpse of his glory. Shadows is all we've seen, a mere foretaste. If we could see him in his glory, if we could experience his love and his joy and that peace in all fullness that he longs to give to us, if we could know his goodness without doubts, if we could be removed from all those lies that we believe about God and every other barrier that comes between us and the knowledge of God and the true seeing, the true knowing, if all of that could be removed, then I do believe we wouldn't need anyone to tell us to seek, sell, follow him with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. We would say, everything I have is yours, Lord. Everything is yours. My life is yours. I long to obey. And it won't be a duty or an obligation, but a joy and a delight. As I've been saying all along, it's Jesus himself. He's the treasure hidden in the field. In the story of the Magi, it literally was Jesus at the end of the journey that when they saw him, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They knew they had come to the fulfillment of their search. It is Jesus and life in him and with him and under him. God himself is the treasure. And we've been saying this morning that seeing is the key. If you see, you'll seek, you'll sell. That will be natural and obvious if only you first see. So let me 
close with, with an attempt. How feeble is my attempt? Let me close with an attempt to tell you just a little bit why Jesus is the treasure. There's so many things, more than we could ever say, right? But let's begin with the fact of our very lives. He is our maker. We exist because he decided that would be good. And he loves us, and he called us into being, and every breath you get is a gift from him. He loves your life, and he wants you to have it. He's faithful. He's a promise maker, and he's a promise keeper, and he never abandons those who call upon him. With power, he hears our prayer, and he helps us in time of need. He's merciful, not treating us as we deserve for the wrong things we've done. And and I could go on, but really, the one thing I would love to focus on, I want to tell you about his love, his love for you. His love for you, the love of God, is the greatest treasure. It's immeasurable. I, I can't talk about it in a way that even comes close to its value. It's his love that seeks you. His love that was seeking you all along. His love that's seeking you right now. And you better believe when it comes to seeing, he sees all right. He sees truly who you are, the good and the bad. He sees it all, and still he seeks. He wants you, and he wants to be with you. And he's been seeking you your whole life long, even when you ignored him. Even when you turned your back on him, even when you slammed the door in his face, or worse, treated him with a cold indifference. Even then, he was still there, still seeking you, and today, right now, he wants you. He wants your whole life. He wants your whole soul. He wants your whole heart. He wants everything that you have. You know, the Magi, before they could ever go out in search of the baby, God first, in that baby, came searching for them. And when we consider the parable that we've been meditating on this morning, do you know the most beautiful truth of this parable is that, in a way, Jesus himself is the worker in the field. Jesus is the one who found a treasure, and he said, I'm going to give up everything for this treasure. I'm going to sell it all. I'm going to give everything that I have, the very life of God poured out for the treasure that I found. And the treasure is you. You are the treasure that he gave his life for, that he is seeking. Isn't that amazing? And it's this love, this seeking, searching, ultimately this sacrificial love, this is the treasure worth selling everything to have. There's no love like his love. And it's there for you if you want it. And it is that simple. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.